Oh, that's the foghorn. Welcome to the Cabot Ships podcast, where we hope to cut through the fog, cut through the sandstorms, and cut through the sea mist that surrounds just about anything you want to talk about when it comes to naval maritime issues. This is the podcast for June 12, 2021. I'm Chris Cavus. I'm Chris Cervello. Uh, it's great to be here and great to join you, Chris. This is uh, exciting. Podcast number one. It is. We're great to be here. It's, uh, we've been talking about this for way too long, and, uh, and I'm pretty excited to start this. So what we're going to do is take a look at uh, naval maritime events in the U.S., across the seas, around the world, whatever's going on. We'll do it with industry, we'll do weapons, and we'll uh, do events. So, Chris, who are we anyway? (laughs) Who are we? That's always a good question. Well, first of all, we are um, part of the Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Chris bringing uh, decades of journalism experience, digging into the Navy and maritime services. Uh, Me as a former Navy public affairs officer and continuing to be a communicator, we're going to bring that communication focus and talk about uh, things that may get glossed over or may get buried in a busy week uh, for folks that are interested in in maritime uh, topics. Uh, Our goal is, uh, as you said, Chris, we're going to try to do this weekly for about 30 to 40 minutes each week. We'll bring you the naval news of the day, as you said, some interviews and guests along the way. Um, and at the end, maybe a bit of squawking. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, as, as I learned throughout my 20 years, a squawking sailor is a happy sailor. I'll, I'll be polite and say squawking instead of what we normally say. But and hopefully this will be where people tune in each week to get their deeper look and their deeper feel for maritime issues. Well, if you like a squawking sailor, you came to the right place. Coming up in this half hour... At long last, the White House has named its nominee to be the next Secretary of the Navy. We'll talk about who is Carlos del Toro and the challenges he faces. Also, the eagerly awaited Navy 30-year shipbuilding plan seems to be delayed again when we'll, we'll look at the implications of a leaked budget memo telling Navy leaders they have to choose between a new submarine, a new destroyer, or a new strike fighter, and they can only have one. But first, a look at worldwide naval news this week. Well, Chris, on June 4th, the Navy's MQ-25A Stingray, uh, the unmanned carrier-based aircraft program, carried out its first unmanned aerial refueling flight, passing more than 300 gallons of fuel to an F-A-18F Super Hornet strike fighter from the test squadron based at Pax River. As you talked about on Vago's show earlier in the week, and as we've talked about off air, this is a huge development for the program. Uh, a program that had lots of excitement, but um, had, had kind of been marred with the normal acquisition m- malaise. This is the shot in the arm that this, uh, this program uh, needed. Yes, its goal, at least the short-term goal, is to produce an aerial tanker. Um, but as you and other experts have remarked uh, over the last several years, the M in its uh, designator, meaning multi-mission, uh, opens up all sorts of ideas uh, for what this platform could turn into. Um, could it be an ISR, an intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance platform? Could it eventually evolve into uh, a strike capability? Um, but the Navy's plan is to buy 76 of the Stingrays um, with uh, an IOC or an initial operating capability set for 2025. So big news for this program earlier in the week. In surface ships in San Diego, on uh, June 7th, the commander of U.S. Naval Forces, Vice Admiral Roy Kitchener, discussed his Task Force LCS efforts 
to uh, look at the roles and missions of the littoral combat ship program. This has been ongoing since the middle of last year. Uh, a lot of people are looking for something new out of this. Uh, Kitchener talked about he'd found 32 points of failure in the, in the program, but he provided few specifics, no public release of any kind of report or even data points uh, from the study. And to be fair about it, it left a lot of people wanting in terms of hard news. It was just still lacking in that. And we've heard this sort of thing before. So more to come on that. Turning to operations, Chris, uh, NATO exercised formidable shield wrapped up off Portugal and the biannual Baltops exercise began on June 6th off of Denmark. Uh, major ships in the Baltops exercise are Sixth Fleet flagship Mount Whitney and British amphibious ship Albion. In the Pacific, the U.S. submarine force is carrying out exercise Agile Dagger, a major effort involving a third of Pacific submarine force boats, um, while at the same time the Russian Navy is engaged in at least two major exercises. Most of its northern fleet uh, big ships underway in the Barents Sea and about 20 Pacific fleet ships exercising in the Central Pacific. In the Mediterranean, the British aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth and the French carrier Charles de Gaulle with their strike groups met up on June 3rd. Uh, Queen Elizabeth is at the beginning of the long-awaited carrier strike group 21 deployment, which is going to take her out into the Pacific. Charles de Gaulle is coming up from a Clemenceau 21 deployment that, that started in February and went out as far as the Indian Ocean. U.S. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday uh, was a guest aboard the carriers at the same time. Japan-based carrier Ronald Reagan began her summer patrol uh, along with Carrier Air Wing 5 after a winter overhaul at her home port in Yokosuka, Japan. She's to move out to the Indian Ocean by mid or late summer to relieve carrier Dwight D. Eisenhower in covering the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, this has uh, received quite a bit of coverage in the last couple weeks uh, as folks ask why the Navy's only four deployed carrier would have to cover for what would traditionally be an East Coast or West Coast job. On the West Coast, carrier Carl Vincent appears set to deploy with carrier Air Wing 2 embarked uh, later this year. On the East Coast, the carrier Gerald R. Ford left Norfolk on June 7th, and she is now expected to begin shock trials in mid-June. This is a total of three tests are, that are planned, usually held about a week or 10 days apart, normally at a location that's uh, about 100 miles or so off Jacksonville, Florida. And while the Navy may not announce the test right away, they're usually noticed by seismic monitors. Such systems are able to pinpoint the location of the patrol combat ship Milwaukee shock trials in September 2016. So they're taking earth earthquakes, seismic activity, and the blasts are big enough to be detected on those systems. At the conclusion of the shock trials, Ford will return to her birthyard, Newport News Shipbuilding, for upgrades and further work over the fall and winter. She'll come out next spring 2022, begin workups for her first deployment. Also in surface ships, destroyer Jack Lucas, the first Flight 3 Arleigh Burke class destroyer, was quietly launched June 4th at Huntington English Shipbuilding in Pascagoula with no major notice. Uh, this is the first of the up upgraded uh, Arleigh Burke class with a, with a totally new, new uh, radar to go with the Aegis Combat System, the Spy 6 radar, and a number of other improvements. In Bath, Maine, the Flight 2A destroyer Carl Levin was launched at Bath Ironworks over the night of uh, May 15th and 16th. That's the first destroyer launched at Bath since 2019, after several years of delays in the shipbuilding contracts 
BIW seems to have uh, halted further setbacks, made progress in getting ship construction back on schedule. Speaking of uh, ship construction, uh, down at Austell, USA and Mobile, Alabama, the Independence Class littoral combat ship, Mobile LCS-26, was commissioned May 22nd, and Can Canberra LCS-30 was christened on June 5th. Uh, Canberra's name commemorates the loss of the cruiser Canberra in the battle with U.S. forces in 1942. An interesting development with Austell's other major shipbuilding took place uh, this week as well with the announcement of a $44 million contract modification to fit the expeditionary fast transport Apalachicola EPF-13 for optional autonomous operation, which was interesting news given uh, all of the discussion about manned and unmanned uh, for the future. This would make the 2,500 ton ship the largest vessel in the U.S. Navy's unmanned vessel program uh, if it comes to fruition. Moving to China, a three-ship task force passed through Japan's Asumi Strait, June 2nd, headed from the Yellow Sea to the Pacific, transiting a narrow waterway at the southern tip of Japan's southernmost island. The move is considered by many to be provocative, but not unlike the right of innocent passage and freedom of navigation FONOPS operations performed by the U.S. Navy in sensitive waterways and locations in the South China Sea and Taiwan Strait. China has been much more aggressive in recent months in its sea and air intrusions around Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, and elsewhere. The newspaper The Global Times noted that the Osumi Transit was the third time in 2021 Chinese warships have crossed the straits near Japan. The paper noted, in quotes, that while these transits are routine, they could also be interpreted as warnings to Japan, which has been acting hostile towards China by hyping topics like Diayu Islands in the Taiwan question and joining military exercises with other Western countries targeting China. Iran has already sent two naval ships into the Atlantic. The sea-based ship Macron, a converted tanker, appears to be continuing to approach the Americas, reportedly headed to, for Venezuela to deliver significant weapons purchased by that country. The Macron, escorted by the frigate Sahand, is carrying seven fast missile attack boats. Spotted in early June rounding the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Africa, the ships were shown in mid-central Atlantic during Iranian Navy briefing on June 11th. Delivery of the missile craft is a concern, not just for the U.S., but also other countries in Central America, wary of the regime of President Nicola Maduro. Chief among those being worried is neighbor Colombia. Compounding problems for the U.S. and others is the fact that these are naval ships. These are not commercial cargo carriers. And under the law of the sea, naval ships on innocent passage are immune from interference. The Norfolk-based destroyer Laboon entered the Black Sea June 11th, becoming the seventh U.S. Navy or Coast Guard ship to operate in the Inland Sea this year. Coast Guard ship Hamilton was in the Black Sea from late April to mid-May. And before we turn to the Inside the Beltway merry-go-round, there was an interesting industry announcement that came out late this week. Mark Vandroff, former Navy captain with deep shipbuilding experience, was named to succeed Jan Allman as the chief executive officer at Fincantieri Marinette Marine, based in Marinette, Wisconsin. There, he'll be responsible for producing the U.S. Navy's new Constellation-class frigate and continuing to work with Lockheed Martin on their littoral combat ship and Saudi frigate programs. Vandroff also worked on the National Security Council during the last year of the Trump administration. Turning to Washington, budget season is about to kick into high gear. 
very late in the season, and there will be a tight and compressed budget and confirmation hearing process. Friday afternoon, June 11th, the White House finally announced its intent to nominate a Navy secretary, Carlos del Toro. Chris, who is Carlos del Toro? So Carlos del Toro is a 1983 graduate of the United States Naval Academy. He was a surface warfare officer, retired uh, as a Navy captain. Um, he was the uh, commissioning CEO of a, of a DDG, and he um, spent uh, a fair amount of time uh, working in important staff jobs. He uh, was a, a staff assistant in the Office of Management and Budget, uh, working at the White House, and also um, spent some time on uh, the staff of uh, the Department of Defense acquisition team. So he brings a lot of experience. Sadly, I don't know that he brings the personality of the kind of the traditional and ballyhooed Secretary of the Navy that will be that champion for shipbuilding. Uh, but but we'll see. But um, he's got a lot of Navy experience uh, that he brings with him to the job. He was uh, the CEO of um, Bulkley. Bulkley. DDG-84. DDG-84, a ship also commanded by our friend Brian McGrath, Brian McGrath during his career. That's right. He's the last significant nominee for the Defense Department that, that we've been waiting for. All the other service secretaries have, have long been nominated. Some are, are, are uh, confirmed already. Um, what does that say about the importance of the Navy in the, in the White House and the Pentagon right now? I don't know that it says much about the importance of the Navy. I, I think it speaks to um, that there were other more important jobs that the president uh, wanted to fill um, and that he had maybe other people initially in mind before he settled on uh, Carlos del Toro. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that the Navy and how the Navy fits into kind of the longer strategy um, is not a a huge focus for the White House. Um, but I, I think the Navy, as it compares to other services, uh, I, I just think that, you know, waiting as long as they did is more an issue for the Navy than it is for the White House. It's also going to be a disadvantage for him uh, coming in as the, the budget has already been, been submitted. Testimony season is about to really begin in earnest, and he's not part of that. He's not part of that. And depending on when that 30-year shipbuilding plan comes out, he could find himself testifying in his uh, confirmation hearing to a budget that he had nothing to do with, to a 30-year shipbuilding that he has nothing to do with, and have to deal with a cranky Congress that is already annoyed with how the budget was, uh, was rolled out. Um, maybe what's in the 30-year shipbuilding plan and what's not in the 30-year shipbuilding plan, uh, and, and the fact uh, from Navy Hawks that you know he was the last guy picked. So uh, he's got his work cut out for him as he preps and goes through confirmation. So the 30-year plan itself was, uh, we were widely expecting that this week. Um, nominally, it's supposed to come over with the budget, literally with the budget, same day. That never happens, but it usually follows fairly closely. Um, the Trump administration released a long delayed plan in December as they were starting to head out the door. Uh, and most people would rather see at this point what the current administration is thinking. Again, it's, it's been delayed. Uh, this is something that's sent over to Congress and multiple uh, people in Congress were told to look for the plan in the middle of this week. Hasn't happened. What's the significance of this plan? I mean, what do, what do people do with it? What's the, how important is this? 
I think it depends who you ask, Chris, right? I mean, I, uh, the, the Navy certainly doesn't think it's important because they don't really stick to it. They don't release it on time. But I think that there are people on the Hill and people in the media and people in watchdog groups that look at it very carefully. They look at it for kind of what it's most known for, which is the layout of ships and, and the build plan over the next three decades. And then if you dig deeper into it, the the greater experts look for um, indications on when ships will be decommissioned, how long certain ships classes will, um, you know, their service life will be. So there's, there's lots of information in, in it. Um, it is frustrating to people that have been around the process and been around uh, the creation of the document because the Navy seems to take it the least serious of all of those that look for it. Right. Con Congress loves this plan. Um, they have ever since it was it was uh, introduced some years ago, and uh, the last uh, they've been you know squawking to a great degree when it when it is delayed. They like the uh, tables, so it's it's the the heart of the plan. It are essentially four tables covering the next thirty years, showing different force levels. It's referred to both as a fleet plan and as a shipbuilding plan because both are in it. This is, this is all the ships we're buying, the number of ships we're buying, when we look to buy them. And this is what the force levels are, how many ships we'll have at whatever year you're, you're, you're talking about. So if you're talking about growing the fleet, especially growing the fleet to a specific goal, which at the moment is 355 ships, this is the prime metric for when are we going to hit that? How long is it going to take to hit that? How long can you, can you maintain that? Yeah, it, it's interesting because, I mean, the Navy's got a couple different processes and a couple different documents that it tries to integrate in this plan, as you mentioned, right? So that we've got varying force structure assessments. The most recent um, was, uh, was done last year. Um, then you have kind of the laws of the land. I mean, Congress has said that the fleet should be no smaller than 355. Then you have the work that goes into this fleet plan or this 30-year shipbuilding plan that says when and what and how we'll buy. So um, I'm hopeful that as the new administration comes in, as things settle out, that those um, efforts will be better aligned. Um, and so if we don't see it in this document, maybe in next year's documents, we'll see a 30-year shipbuilding plan and a master aircraft plan that kind of match where the service wants to go in the future with the type and amount of fleet it needs. The master aircraft plan, of course, is a, is a significant corollary to the fleet plan. Uh, you can't pitch at the Navy about that, though, because that is the responsibility of the Air Force. Right. So uh, all, all aircraft stuff has to be funneled through the Air Force. The other thing is that the, uh, the, the shipbuilding plan, as you said, contains a lot of other information, stuff that's sort of miscellaneous catch-all of other areas that are documents one that is discussed and will be discussed a lot this time around is the plan to inactivate ships so every year the navy puts out a plan we're going to you know this is this is our decommissioning list and that that list changes from time to time it's not not, not always a death sentence sometimes uh, other ships seem to be in worse shape and then they then they figure then they'll they'll swap one out for the other but uh, right now, the, uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of controversy on the cruisers again. Uh, the Navy's been trying to decommission a number of the remaining 21 Ticonderoga-class cruisers for some time, a tortured history. 
to say the least, uh, between the Navy and Navy's efforts and Congress pushing back. Um, a lot of these ships are there. Some of them are definitely reaching the end of their um, projected service lives. But also in the course of those 30 years or so uh, service life, the Navy has extended that, that, mm-hmm. those lives in order to make up numbers to get to 355. So they've played a lot of games with these numbers over the years, um, trying to mix and match and come up with how do you get to so many ships. And, and um, the Congress takes a great look at that now. They're, they're, they're wise to this. Um, the uh, congressional analysts seize on that right away. And right now it looks like they want to decommission another seven. Um, we'll see exactly what the current, current seven are in that. Some of those they've already they've actually already been spending money on, on on refitting very recently in the last two years, been in the shipyard, um, and now they want to throw them away. Uh, among other uh, suggestions from Congress is, if you don't want to spend the money to keep these ships fully operational, then can you keep them somehow to keep their missile magazines intact? They they uh, they have. Um, more than 100 VLS cells on each cruiser, vertical launch system cells. So this is not unlike, you know, an arsenal ship where you have a ship that doesn't do much else except carry a whole lot of missiles and, and vertical launch systems. Um, that's that's an interesting option that appeals certainly does not appeal to people who like real ships and real ships that are fully operational on the other hand if you're not going to have the money to buy all the fleet that you want and you're trying to keep up forces and keep up capability it's an interesting idea and the ship itself doesn't have to have all the command and control systems offboard uh, control is a, is a major element of most weapon systems now and different, you don't have to have everything in, in, in one package. So it's, it's, it's a possibility, but, but it's, it's gonna be a part of that discussion. You know, this, this concept of an arsenal ship-like thing uh, persists in talk about the large uh, unmanned service combatant and putting VLS on that, where that would be an, an offboard adjunct to other ships. You could have, be over the horizon, you have the sensors, you take, targeting information from an aircraft, process it into, say, a destroyer, um, firing missiles from a large unmanned service combatant somewhere else, totally different location. Right. And one of the advantages of that is um, if you're an enemy, the first thing they usually go for would be the missile shooter, not necessarily the command and control ship because it's not always obvious who's the command and control unit. But, but you can backtrack, see where a missile came from. Well, this if it's unmanned or minimally manned, it becomes relatively, um, you, you, you can sacrifice it. It, it becomes right. rel- relatively expendable. And without you know, these cruiser hulls, well, maybe they're relatively expendable. They're, all, they're already paid for. You don't have to have them all up and running. You certainly can fit them for unmanned operation. That's been done many times before. That's not new technology at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that that's a proposal out there right now. It's just that if you wanted to run with that, that's the kind of thing you might want to look at as a way to extend the capability of your existing forces. So on June 9th, this uh, memo was leaked 
to the media, widespread leak, deliberate widespread leak of a top level memo from acting Navy Secretary Thomas Harker um, to officials planning the Department of the Navy's fiscal 2023 budget. One key provision of the memo read, the one that got most people's attention right away was it was a passage that said, I quote here, the Navy can't afford to simultaneously develop the next generation of air, surface, and subsurface platforms and must prioritize these programs. As part of the POM 23 budget, the Navy needs to rephase to, to prioritize one of the capabilities and rephase the other two after an assessment of operational, financial, and technical risk. Um, so in other words, you can have, we, you need a new strike fighter, you need a new submarine, you need a new large service combatant, but you can only have one. Uh, Chris, what do you make of this leak and what do you make of all that? It's hard to, it's hard to tell with the leak. Um, you, you know, I think now with the, uh, with the expected announcement of Carlos del Toro as the SECNAV nominee, I, I think most people are, are kind of arriving at the idea that this was, uh, um, Hawker wanted to get all this down, acting secretary of the Navy, Hawker wanted to get all this down, um, presumably guidance that he had been given by the deputy secretary and the folks in the, in the controller world. He wanted to get it down and get it out so that um, you know the media, folks on the Hill, uh, other influencers would know just what the Navy was dealing with. It put the Navy in a really tough spot because uh, you know now they're well put DoD and the Navy in a really tough spot because now you're going up on the hill trying to defend the 22 budget with you know doom and gloom on the horizon uh, for you know potentially for the 23 budget. It conflates the two. The Navy still doesn't have a plan to deal with any of it, so it, it presents I think real problems. I would say probably it backfires. If this was intentional uh, to leak it to try to you know, generate uh, some sort of attention or some sort of, uh, um, you know, feeling for the Navy, I worry that it, that it backfired. The bigger thing that concerns me, aside from jumping through all the budget hoops in 22 and 23, um, is this uh, perception that now the services within the Navy, the air service, the sea service, and the subsurface are, are you know, going to be at each other's throats as uh, the Navy looks to prioritize which of the three major efforts that it needs to, you know, run to the, to the head of the line. I mean, the Navy is probably the most of the uh, parochial of all the services. I'm not sure that, that this really helps. Now, the flip side of that coin is there's people that sort of shake that, that you know, sort of shrug and say, hey, this stuff happens. These are big boys and girls. They've got to be able to figure it out and, and move forward. So I think we'll see here in the next few weeks, the one person that definitely loses by all of this is Carlos Del Toro, as I said at the beginning. Right. Well, it's certainly a tough environment. And it's uh, pretty hard to come in, in the middle of the game and then try to pick up the ball and drive. So, so we'll see what happens. Good luck to him. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. Okay. Well, I guess it's time to cut this stuff off and get into the squawk box portion of our program. So um, with budget testimony season coming into full play, there will be a dirty word you'll hear over and over from top Navy officials. They'll refer to it with a sneer and a sigh, always with the implication it's an awful burden to bear. That word is ooh, legacy. Uh, As in, we're trying to divest ourselves of these legacy systems so we can reinvest in newer platforms. The added cost of supporting these legacy programs is just too high. We need to move away from these legacy systems, focus on more effective systems, and on and on. Well, maybe. 
Simply put, legacy programs are usually, not always, but usually those which are no longer in production. They can be 30 years old, 10 years old, or in the case of one total combat ship, Navy leadership wants to throw away the USS Little Rock, only three and a half years old. The problem with this talk about the burden of legacy programs is you're supposed to have a mix of new, middle-aged, and older assets. The burden of managers and planners is how to keep those older systems effective as they age. The way you get to a larger fleet is you build more ships than you throw away. If you throw away things simply because they're not the latest and greatest, you will never grow any fleet. And besides, no one wants an all-new force. If everything is new at the same time, uh-oh, it will all become old at the same time. And replacing ships and aircraft overnight is simply not a reality-based option. So sorry, admirals, a big part of your job is to keep those legacy programs running and effective over the course of their planned service life. Complaining that not everything is new is a sorry excuse. Well, that's our squawking for the week. Chris, this has been awfully fun. I look forward to doing this again with you. I look forward to next week. Hopefully next week won't be as busy. This was jam-packed, but it was a lot of fun. Every and, week is jam-packed. That's exactly right. right. And look forward to the feedback. So tell us what you like. Tell us what you didn't like. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to make this better. All right. Well, folks, thanks much for uh, tuning in. Tune in next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>